views expressed on this broadcast of Step by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety with Dr. Alan Berger do not necessarily reflect those of Take 12 Radio, KHLT Recovery Broadcasting, or our affiliates. Take 12 Radio and KHLT Recovery Broadcasting are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. And now, here's your host, Dr. Alan Berger and the Monty Man. Well, greetings, recovery family, and welcome to another fine episode here at the world's only totally insane recovery radio station, Take12Radio.com, on your internet dial. And of course, this is Step by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety with our friend, Dr. Alan Berger. Dr. Berger, how are you this week? I'm ready to take another step towards emotional sobriety. Boy, was that corny. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like we rehearsed that, and we didn't. Uh, Yeah, that's all right. Well, you know, we we got to be a little little insane to be doing all the work that we that you know you and you do, I do, so many of these other fine fine folks. Uh, My goodness sakes, this is the number one addiction being the number one health threat in our country today, yeah. uh, we we just need to be on the ball and on top of this stuff all the time. Very true. Very yeah. true, Lonnie. And, and that's what we're, we're really dedicated to is to trying to share with people some concepts that will help them establish this emotional sobriety in their lives. And what I know is true is that if people do this and they're in recovery, it's going to ensure their emotional well-being in the recovery, which then um, ensures that they're going to have a lot more stability, which then obviously, you know, relates to people staying around longer. Because really, at least in most circumstances, people that I've worked with and sponsored and and helped and and myself as well... uh, the 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 alcohol the the narcotics those were just an outward manifestation of an inward condition they were never really the problem yes yeah yeah now, th- there's no question that they created some of their own problems sure you bet but, you know what alcoholism and other drug addictions do but you're right on with this is that we had to get down to causes right yeah and what we're talking about, and, you know, I've just, I, I think I mentioned to you before we went on the show, I'm just coming back from St. Louis, Missouri, where I was invited to come and do a three-day retreat on emotional sobriety. And this was a very, very powerful retreat. And if those listeners are out there are interested in that, there are possibilities for me coming to their community and doing this. But next year, in April of next year, at the Anderson Retreat Center in Hazleton, I'm going to be doing this retreat on emotional sobriety. And so if people are interested, they can go and learn more about it on the Hazleton website. But what was so powerful about this money, and I want to get into this, is see what emotional sobriety is about is finding a way that makes you the determining force in your emotional well-being. See, the emotional dependency that undermines our emotional sobriety makes us dependent on other people for our emotional well-being. And when we establish emotional sobriety or the way to establish emotional sobriety in our lives 
is to unhook our dependence on others and learn how to move our emotional center of gravity back into ourselves. And that's what our show is dedicated to doing, is to helping people get some ideas on how to do that. And tonight, as I promised our listeners, we're going to start to get into some of the psychotherapy masters and what they had to say that relates to this whole issue of emotional sobriety. And tonight we're going to be spending some time with someone that was very, very influential in family therapy, and her name is Virginia Satir. Uh, She's passed away now for a number of years. But we're going to look at some of her quotes and some of her ideas, and hopefully our listeners are going to see how it relates to emotional sobriety. All right. Let's let's uh, move forward. I just want to encourage folks. Uh, listen, here's the thing: you can rewind these shows, uh, you can replay them, you can download them to your uh, smartphone, your your hard drive, whatever. And uh, please don't hesitate to email us here. Uh, Doctor Berger's email is on the page that this is on. So is mine. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, if if you have any. Uh, concerns, please don't hesitate to do so. All right. So the name of this individual, again, is Virginia? Dr. Virginia Satir. And uh, she's written a lot of different things in her career, but one of the books that that I love is a book that she wrote called People Making. And there's just a lot of great ideas and concepts in there for people that are trying to you know, put together their families and mm-hmm. to, you know, help their families become all that they can be. But it, let's start with one of her quotes, Bonnie. Yes. Because I think that this quote is very, very powerful. She goes, we are always trying to get out of our emotional jail. Mostly we try by begging, threatening, or pleasing other people. <laughs> trying to get them to do it for us. So let me say that again. Mostly we try by begging, threatening, or pleasing other people, trying to get them to do it for us. Trying to get them to get us out of our emotional jail? Right. The emotional jail that we created through our emotional dependency. And we want them to do it for us. Right. See, so if they act in the way that we specify, yeah. then we're going to feel okay. Then we're going to have that emotional well-being that we're all looking for. So what we do is that we say, well, God, you know, if you really, really care about me, you'll do this. If you really, really feel this way or that way, you'll do that. In fact, one of the things that she said, and I love this quote, now listen to this one. She goes, one of the truly basic problems is that our society bases the marital relationship almost completely on love and then imposes demands on it that love can never solely fulfill. But here are some of the demands. If you love me, you won't do anything without me. If you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll give me what I want. If you love me, You'll know what I want before I even ask. Wow. He goes, these kinds of practices soon turn love into a kind of a blackmail, an emotional blackmail. She calls it the clutch. Mm, then that's not love. That's not love. No. no. That's, that's what we've talked about, is that in our society, we have fused love and dependency. 
we think love means that you're going to take care of me and that you're going to do a better job of taking care of me than I take care of myself. I discuss this a lot in my first book that I wrote called Love Secrets Revealed. I also, um, Love Secrets Revealed, that was published by Health Communications in 2006. This is also talked about a lot in 12 Smart Things, the book that Hazleton published that I wrote on emotional sobriety. But you can see that this is the same problem. If you love me, you'll do this to make me feel okay. If you love me, you'll do that to make me feel okay. If you love me, you'll love me so much that I won't even have to use any words to tell you what I want. You see, we turn ourselves into a baby, don't we? Into an infant when we're in a relationship because of the dependency that we have on the other person. I don't even want to have to speak up for myself. If you love me, you'll know what I want even before, and I won't even have to tell you. And you know, you know what, Doctor Berger, men accuse women of of expecting us to read their minds, but I got to right. tell you, men do that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, this is very, very common on both sides of the gender line. Yeah. No question about it, Monty. Both men and women do this stuff. We, 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 it's really mutual in terms of how bad we treat each other, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, we both are, can be, you know, we both can bring out, you know, what I say is we save our worst behavior for those people we love. And that's yeah. on both sides of the coin. Men do that and women do that. And do we do that? Do we do that because we believe very, very, uh, 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 securely, uh, we almost cement it in there that you're not going to turn on me because you love me, so you're not going to turn on me, so I can treat you this way, and it'll be all right anyway. That may be a part of it. I think even more so what happens is that we treat people that way because we think our home should be the place where everything goes our way. Right. See, that's what I think the problem really is, okay. is that, that we think that we should get everything the way we want it. It's the one place in the world where people are going to do everything we want them to do because we think that that's what happens when you love someone. You just give them everything they want. Now, you and I know that's a very immature idea. In fact, some other people that we're going to be talking about would call this immature love. Mm-hmm. That kind of love is very, very much immature because it's not based on two people holding on to themselves and standing on their two feet. It's based on two people being dependent and filling in for each other in terms of what the other person's not. And that's not a healthy relationship. And that, that's, that's a good uh that's a good example of, of people turning human beings into their higher power. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what happened. Here's another line that she has. She goes, if you are not eternally showing me that you live for me, then I feel like I'm nothing. Wow. It, well, you see, this is the, the whole core problem of emotional dependency, is that we let the other person's attitude and behavior determine how we're going to feel about ourselves. So if they don't treat us well, then somehow we feel like we're not worthy or we're not lovable or we feel like we're nothing. But then we're letting that other person's behavior determine our worth. Hmm. And that's going to breed a lot of trouble because it's going to breed resentment in a relationship. It's going to breed rebellion. It's going to breed all kinds of toxic and acting out behavior. 
So what we're hoping people are going to do by listening to this show and starting to do some of their own work, and we're going to talk about, especially in the second half of the show tonight, what does some of that work look like? And I want to share a few examples, and obviously I'm going to keep people confidential from the retreat that we did, but I'm going to show what does it mean to hold on to yourself and what kind of work needs to take place. And I'm going to give you a few examples of some of the people that did this work at, the emotion, at that emotional sobriety retreat that I just conducted. Excellent. Uh, before we go any further, give me the spelling of uh, this doctor's name so we can post this and her book on the website. All right. It's Virginia okay. Satir, S-A-T-I-R, comma, Ph.D. The book was published in 1972, and it's called People Make. Okay, and if we can we can get that, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it'd probably be on Amazon or on one of those. That's right. You uh, should be able to pick it up there. Yeah, we'll, we'll so, put a link on, so on the page. Before we go to break, let's talk about one more of her quotes. Yeah, let's do that. Then when we come back, we'll talk about <coughs> the Emotional Sobriety Retreat. This is what she said, and, and it's interesting because Ernie Larson made a very similar comment. But I'm going to read hers first, and then I'll read Ernie's. She goes, when something goes wrong in my relationships, I try to make a picture in my mind of a circle with myself in the middle of the circle. And then I ask myself, what part in my problem are my thoughts playing? What part in my problem are my fears playing? What part in my problem are my expectations playing? My interpretations. What part in my problem, on my lack of faith to be able to grow plain, or is my lack of faith in being able to grow plain? So what she does is instead of looking at what the other person is doing wrong, right. she's taking a look at what she's doing to contribute to the difficulties. Remember the emotional sobriety inventory that we ask people to do. In that inventory, we're asking people to identify their unenforceable rules, their claims, their demands, their unreasonable expectations, and the consequent unhealthy dependence. Well, that's what Virginia is doing, exactly what she's doing when she talks about when something goes wrong, I try to make a picture in my mind of a circle, and I put myself right in the middle. And this is the thing that those of us that have established emotional sobriety do. When something goes wrong, it's a spiritual axiom, and this is written in the 12 and 12, I believe. It's a spiritual axiom that every time upset, that I am upset, there is something wrong with me. It doesn't say it's a spiritual axiom. Every time I'm upset, it means that some fool is behaving in a way that they shouldn't. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says, I need to take a look at myself. And see, that's what really recovery is all about. It's about us taking responsibility for what's going on in our life, for what we're experiencing, and seeing what we can do to address that, to empower ourselves to take responsibility, to create a relationship, and to create a connection with someone that we feel good about. And, you know, I, w- I want to make clarify something here for the listeners, uh, because this is an issue that I used to balk at, and, and, and it's, it was only because I didn't understand it. 
uh, I used to say, well, sometimes something will bother me because what's going on is 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 just simply immoral, unfair, and wrong, and and my spirit is is grieving, and and there's some truth to that, but we have to understand that there's a difference between being stirred up inside to where we're not okay versus being burdened by something that's going on that that may be wrong or unkind. I mean, today I can look at situations and really have a burden in my heart to pray for people or to help them and so forth. And it it stirs something in me, but it's that's not the same as what we're talking about. We're talking about when we're getting really ticked off and torqued and upset and emotionally depraved because of other people's behavior, right? Yeah, you know, but it's interesting. I'm not so sure I would split that in the way that you do, though, Monty. Because, see, I think that whenever I am being moved, let's say I see something that is just bothering me that I see in somebody else. Yeah. Well, if I don't own that that's a part of me, too, right? then I'm going to get more righteous about that. It's like what we know is that any one of us are capable of some pretty horrendous things. Sure. And if I get really upset about something, it's probably because I haven't taken a look at how that, maybe not to the same degree it's manifesting in somebody else, but how that characteristic is operating in me. The more I accept all of me, the less I react to other people. So we could really measure measure it. Am I... Am I burdened by something to... to, to, to yeah, if, to... It's, if it's moving in me and, and I'm getting upset about it, what's going on? Right. Am I not looking at how that shows up in my life? Because, you know, what do we say? If, if somebody walks into a meeting and you don't like them, that's probably the most important person in the meeting for you. Now, why is that? Because that person, you are... That person is embodying something that you are disowning and not taking responsibility sure. for. Sure, So if, let's say, that person is being self-centered, and they're just thinking about themselves, well, that means that you haven't dealt with your own self-centeredness. See, so it's that kind of stuff, is that when I start to accept all these different parts of me, then I'm less likely to judge and react and react feel righteous yeah. towards anybody else. Then I have compassion. And what do we say is the compassion we have in the program? There I go, but for? The grace of God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can say that about anybody. And, and so we, I can say that about any person. There I go, but for the grace of God. When I do that, I'm no longer judging. I'm no longer looking at that person, looking down at that person. Now I'm looking across at that person, and I'm experiencing an eye-to-thou relationship. Yeah. Yeah, so I, my, I'm, not, I'm not having a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not stuffing a resentment. Uh, I, I can look at a situation. Yeah, I'm not trying to, to control to somebody else's rotten behavior and elevate myself. Right, right. By saying, "Wow, look at them." Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a there's a great uh, Bible verse where the guy goes, "Thank God I'm not like those other guys." Right. You, you know, it's, that is so because when we do that, then we become that very person that we're criticizing. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's the point of this. Yeah. This is what Ernie Larson said. Ernie Larson was the author of Stage Two uh, Relationships, Love Beyond Addiction. And he goes, 
in relationships, my lot in life changes, not when I first demand change in others, but when I seriously take stock in myself. So in, my, in relationships, my lot in life changes, not when I first demand change in others, but when I seriously take stock in myself. So I'm hoping our listeners are starting to see a pattern. In order to, take, to regulate yourself, in order to soothe yourself, you have to get honest with yourself and see what you're doing that's contributing to the problem. Let me, let me, let me ask you a question, and then we'll take our break. Uh, there are people listening right now that are, are doing the, the head nod, and they're going, yep, yep, I know, I know, I know, I know, but never get past I know. <laughs> why, why do we, when we know better, you know, uh, Dr. Phil says something, when you know better, you do better. I don't know if I agree with that. I know yeah, a lot I don't of, agree with him on that. I, I, I don't think knowing better doesn't get you to right. remember what Bill said. He said, well, how is it that we can't get off this emotional merry-go-round? That, that, that we, ha- we know what the right thing to do is, and how come we can't do it? That's right. It's not the knowing. It's the integration. And see, that's what Dr. Phil doesn't understand, you know, in the, is that you've got to integrate that knowledge emotionally. And look, it, you just gave me a great segue to what we're going to do after the break. I'm going to give a few examples that, is, that are going to show our listeners what does Dr. Berger mean when he says, how do you integrate this stuff? So when we come back, we're gonna, I'm going to give a few case examples of people doing that. All right, super. Don't go away, folks. Some more with Dr. Alan Berger step-by-step towards emotional sobriety when we come back. Hey there, it's the Monty Man. And I sincerely hope that you are enjoying this episode of Step-by-Step Toward Emotional Sobriety with our friend, Dr. Alan Berger. It is a pleasure and an honor to bring back this workshop series for you. Now listen, every week we are remastering and rebroadcasting and setting up this special page that has every single one of these workshops added to it weekly. Simply visit us at Take12Radio.com. Click down to the banner that says Recovery Workshops. Click on that and then click on Step-by-Step Towards Emotional Sobriety to download and listen to every single one of these shows on emotional sobriety. Again, we will update them weekly. Thanks for joining us and please Don't forget to share this with your friends, your family, and others in the recovery community. Hey, check it out. The best in recovery talk and positive music radio is now available on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube, and Podomatic. Simply visit any of these platforms and search for Take 12 Recovery Radio. Listen and download hundreds of our shows for fun and for free. Also available at Take12Radio.com. All right, uh, Dr. Allen Berger is on the line with us. We're talking about emotional sobriety, of course, our favorite topic. And uh, uh, we're going to be launching forth here into the second half of this show. What's going on now, buddy? Well, I want to just lay out a little bit what happened in the structure of the retreat. So if anybody's interested, they can get a preview. And then talk about what happened on Saturday night when we do the processing of the emotional sobriety inventory. So on Friday night, what we do is we spend time putting emotional sobriety in the context of the steps and talk about how when we're actually taking the inventory, doing step seven, doing step eight, 
that there are many references that are pointing to what are, is our basic flaw. What are our emotional deformities that create so much problem in our relationships? And I believe that not only will people see that self continues to show up, but if they take another step deeper inside, it's the self that's determined by how people are treating us and feeling towards us. So deeper than the self is, in, in fact, this emotional dependency. And that's what gets us so self-centered, because we're so concerned with how we're being accepted, how we're being treated, how somebody's behaving towards us, that it's all about us. They've got to behave a certain way to make us feel okay, and that drives us in so many different ways, whether it's to be sexually exploitive of people in order to get them to validate us, and you know, or whether it's to be a bully and get people to do things our way because we feel they must go our way for us to feel okay about ourselves. It, it's this, this, this shows up in so many different ways, Monty. So that's what happens Friday night. Then Saturday morning, what we did is we talked about some of the psychological concepts, and I talked about people like Virginia Satir and Ernie Larson and Fritz Perls and people that we're going to be getting into more as this show goes on, Eric Fromm, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, all these great, great thinkers uh, of in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And then um, in the afternoon, what we did is go through Bill's letter, and I asked everybody, or I taught everybody how to use the emotional sobriety inventory form, and they broke off in groups and wrote down some examples. So now Saturday night, we got together to process all these inventory forms. Now, obviously, I couldn't work with every individual in a group of 25, so I took volunteers. Well, the first guy that volunteered had been six months in his sobriety, and he was in a lot, he was very frustrated. He, what he wrote, the frustrating or the, the upsetting experience in the first column of that emotional sobriety inventory was that his ex-wife, who divorced him because of his alcoholism, would call him and ask him for advice about things. <laughs> now, what he was saying to myself, well, look, at, if, what did you divorce me for? If you don't like me and you don't think I have any value in your life, what are you calling up and getting my opinion for? So he was very upset about it and hurt. Now, I asked him, well, but what did you do? What did you say to her? Well, I helped her. It's <laughs> 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 interesting, isn't it? So, yeah. So uh, it, it's very interesting, you know, that that's his first response. So, so then I said, so you're, you know, you had the the style because what we want people to do is understand: are you moving towards, moving away from, or moving against people? Well, he was moving towards. He wanted to please her, but yet he had all of these other feelings that were going on. Now, this solution of moving towards people means that you erase yourself. It means that you don't count, so you ignore your own feelings, and what you try to do is satisfy, gratify, meet the needs of the other person. Yeah. And you could really see how he did that. He didn't tell her he was upset. He didn't tell her that this had bothered him. He just tried to go ahead and help her with whatever situation was going on. But secretly, he's what? Resenting the situation. Ah, uh, silent scorn. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. He felt rejected. He was angry that she rejected him, and he was a bit, you know, indignant inside, saying, 
well, God, you know, if you, what do you call me for advice, you know, because you divorced me. So that's what he's saying. So let's look at what his unreasonable demand was, right? Yeah. His unreasonable demand was that she should know how he feels and how difficult it is for him without him having to tell her. Wow. That was his unenforceable rule. That was the demand in that third column. What's his unhealthy dependence? Well, his emotional well-being depends on her reading his mind. So I'm going back to the example you said. Do men do that? Well, here's an example. <laughs> yeah. Right? He was doing that exactly. Now, the fifth column is what do you do to hold on to yourself? So that's the piece of work we were trying to do. So in his mind, he had two options. What were the two options? Well, the first option was that he was he would respond in people-pleaser. He had to ignore his feelings. I said, well, what is the other thing? What would you want to do? He says, I just want it. And then he goes into cussing her out and telling her what a rotten person she is. Hmm. So that's probably one of the reasons why he shuts up. It's not a bad idea. If you, what did, We were told when we were kids, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah. Um, I don't really you know, adhere to that or believe in that kind of idea, but I think that's what was going on inside of his mind. Sure. So I said to him, can you think of a way of somehow splitting the difference between people-pleasing her and dealing with the feelings that you have? And he sat there for a minute, and he was really struggling. And I could see that in his you know, silence, he was really doing some work. And then he says, so eloquently, he says, I could say to her, and then he mentions her name, and we're going to use the name Pat. Her name wasn't Pat, but we'll use the name Pat. He goes, okay. Pat, listen, I, I really, really want to be there for you. I, I still care about you, but I've got to tell you that this is very painful for me. It's hard for me when we get on the phone because it brings up a lot of the loss and a lot of the grief and even some of the, the, the anger I have about what happened between us. So what I'd like to let you know is sometimes I'm going to be able to be on the phone with you and I can put some of those feelings aside. It might be easier and I'll be able to be there and, and respond to your questions and help you. And if I can do that and, and feel good about it, I'd love to. But there might be other times when it's just too painful for me. And I'm going to have to say that, you know, I'm just sorry I'm not able to be there for you tonight. Mm. And I just want you to know that. Wow. So when he said that, the whole place applauded. Yeah. All 24 other people, and you should have seen the look on his face, Monty. I mean, this meant the world. And then he sat there, Monty, and he started to cry. Oh, bless his heart. And he just sobbed a deep pain that lasted for at least five minutes, maybe ten. And so, you know, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of pain he has, and I often tell people underneath anger is usually a lot of pain. And he just cried about how terrible it was that his alcoholism has ruined this relationship, and she really was the, you know, love of his life, and he went into all of the grief that he was feeling. But it started by him being able to find a way to hold on to himself and represent all the different parts of himself to his ex-wife. Very powerful. So my question question is, my question is, uh, 
and, I, and I'm thinking some other people are going to be thinking this. They're going to be saying, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, well, that's all fine and dandy, but now, and here's the key. What if they don't respond the way I think they will respond? Right. And now, see, and this is the important thing about emotional sobriety. He says that for his sake, not to get her to respond anyway. Right. So he's not saying that for her to respond. He's just saying that to make a declaration. He's just saying it to be able to share what's going on with him because he needs to share it. And there is no expectation. Right. That's when the thing. you do what you just said, then you're not doing it for the right reason. Right. See, when you're really operating out of what the part of, of, of a person that I'm talking about, we are saying what we need to say because we need to say it, not because it's going to get us something, not because it's going to get a certain response. We don't need a response. Our satisfaction, or what I say, is there's an intrinsic reward to saying it. When we say it because we need to say it, then as soon as we say it, we're finished. We don't need anything from anybody else. He didn't need her to respond one way or the other. He just needed to say this out loud because that was his truth. But you see, he didn't give himself permission to do that. But because he has this move towards style... He always erases himself, and you can't hold on to yourself if you erase yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we're going back to what, what Bill talks about in his letter uh, uh, about the St. Francis Bury. He's going to do this so he'll feel better instead yeah. of doing it for the sake of doing it. You got it. Yeah. What is it? What does it say? How does that, that little line go about comfort versus being comforted, right? Right. We need to learn how to comfort ourselves rather than being comforted by somebody else. So that means we're not comforting so we'll be comforted. We're comforting for the sole purpose of comforting. Period. That's it. Yeah, period. No, that's a very important point. Now, let me give you one more before our show ends tonight. Yeah. Let me give you one more example of another piece of work that was very, very powerful. So um, this gentleman, uh, we'll call him Sam, had uh, two children. And Sam uh, loves his boys. They're twin boys. But one of his boys, he gets along with a lot better than the other one. So we'll call the other boy Pete. Well, with Pete, he ends up in these power struggles all the time. So he gave an example. The upsetting event was Pete was uh, supposed to fold the towels. Uh, Towels were sitting downstairs. He came downstairs and he says, hey, Pete, you know, it's your job today to fold the towels. Pete says, I don't want to fold them. Dad (laughs) says, what do you mean you don't want to fold them? I don't want to fold them. You're going to fold those towels. I'm not folding those towels. Get up to your room. And then he starts to go into it, and it gets pretty bad because at some point he starts to verbally abuse them starts to really put him down and using his power to try to get him to yield to his will. And he knows it's wrong. He feels terrible about it and has a lot of guilt and remorse every time he has an interaction like this with his son. So um, I asked him, you know, where did he learn this? Where did this come from? He says, well, that's exactly what uh, happened between me and my dad. And I said, well, elaborate on it. So he talked about how he and his dad would go through the same stuff, only he was Pete in that case, right? His dad had the power. Right. So I said, well, what do you think, Sam, about sharing that with Pete and your other son in terms of your experience with your dad? 
quote, his first response, which I found very interesting, was he said, I don't want them to think less of my father. Oh. So he was protecting his dad. And I pointed that out to him. I said, I said, are you aware you want to protect your dad rather than connect with your sons? And he says, oh, man, that's right. Wow. Said, and I said, you know, what What do you think is going to happen? Well, that, you know, I think they're going to probably, uh, you know, first of all, I think that you're not giving them enough credit. They probably know that some of this stuff went on. They probably see how your dad behaves and stuff like that. So I don't think you're giving them enough credit. They're probably aware of this already. The issue is is whether this is just going to get talked about openly or not. And if you talk about it openly, it takes away some of the power. So he says, I said, so let's just experiment. Let me put two empty chairs in front of you, and let's see what you would have to say to your sons if you were able to talk to them about this, if you were able to tell them about what your relationship was like with your dad. So he starts to do it, and I said, wait, 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 wait. I just had another idea. So I put another chair behind those two chairs. So there's two empty chairs in front of him, and then I put an em- another empty chair behind the two, and I said, Sam, this is you when you were eight years old. Mm. So when, when you're talking to your boys, I want you to think about what Sam needed to hear from his dad when he was eight, and I want you to say all the things Sam needed to hear to your boys. Wow. Well, this guy starts talking funny, and he is just, starts to ball, and he is so, I mean, it was so moving the way he talked to his sons and what was going on, and um, he was able to really, really deliver the message he wanted to deliver. And then we talked about, you know, he says, and I really want to clean this up, so I said, okay, well, I've got a suggestion then, you know, because what you want to do is to have a different relationship with your boys, especially with Pete. And so how about if you did this? How about if you say, look, from now on, uh, it's about being respectful. I'm not going to pull this power over you. I'm going to talk about what's going on. We're going to try to figure out what. We're going to talk to each other. We're not going to do this kind of stuff. I said, so great. So what you could do is say, look, there's going to be two bucks that's going to sit on top of the TV all the time. If I start doing that other behavior, you don't have to say anything to me directly. Just go grab one of the bucks off the TV. That'll tell me I'm doing this power over thing on you that I don't want to do, and I will stop and back off and, you know, essentially work my 10th step. So not only was he able to say the things to his son, but we were able to come up with a system that he could, you know, install in his family, in his relationship with his boys, so that they would be able to give him some feedback and feel safe in doing it. And he was just, I mean, you just saw at the end of this work, first of all, Everybody in the group just really supported Sam for the work he had done and the risk he had taken and how he opened himself up. And they were always all saying to him, boy, if you really did this with your boys, it would change your relationship with them so much. You know, and Sam had about three years of recovery and was really, really struggling with this issue because it's an issue of emotional sobriety. So one of the things the listeners I hope that you're hearing tonight that to integrate this stuff, you have to feel some of the pain in your life and learn from that pain. We can't do this alone. This is, to me, why in my recovery, there were many times when I spent hours and hours sitting on somebody's couch trying to work through issues. And I think that 
if you go to a good therapist, they can very much complement what you're doing in your recovery. And if you're interested in more of this, please check out the retreat I'm going to do at uh, Hazleton next year. You know, it's spiritual surgery is what it is. And, it, yeah, you know, when, right. when I was getting ready to have my hips replaced, you know, I knew that there was going to be a horrific recovery. I knew that there was going to be pain medication. I knew there was going to be withdrawal. I I didn't know how bad, but I knew it wasn't going to be any fun. Right. But But the choice was don't ever walk again even the little that I can do now, but not at all, and continue to be in horrific pain Mm -hmm. or go through it, not around it, not over it, but through it and recover. And and it's the same thing with this kind of stuff. It's, you you know, what do you want to do? What I mean, you want to stay in it or do you want to recover? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, my hats off to these these folks. Uh, and and you know when you come out of something like that, when, you, when we were talking off the air, you were saying what a what a marvelous retreat it was. I mean, that just must just make you feel so so happy for people. I mean, it just really does something in your heart, doesn't it? Oh, it was amazing, Lonnie. <clears throat> I'm just you know I walked away. From that, feeling very, very um, grateful that yeah. God has given me this gift that I can, you know, be with people in this way. And you know, I say all the time that therapy is about learning, and what we're learning in therapy is learning new possibilities. And that's what we were able to do in this emotional sobriety retreat. And that's what's always happened when I've done these things. Very powerful. I, I want to encourage you, listeners. Uh, there is a PDF file, a link on this page. Uh, please click on it and download it and print it print it out um, because we refer to this quite often and uh, perhaps we can skim over that really fast on one of these shows again so people uh, can kind of see what we're talking about. But if you go back, uh, I believe it was our third show. We talk about that uh, that inventory. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I think that the PDF is on there if people want to check it out. Yeah, and it's so simple. And it's such an awesome tool. It really is. You know, it is so much easier to build a house when you have the right tools. <laughs> it right. really, it really is. I've tried to build right. things in my life by by using the wrong tools, and I'll tell you, nothing ever good comes of it. Yeah, that's right, on, man. That's very well said. <laughs> well, listen, great and money. Right. I love you. Keep up the great work, and. Uh... I just once again want to plug my new book, 12 Hidden Rewards of Making Amends. It's a new publication by Hazleton. It just came out, and uh, it really goes into depth a lot about the psychological forces that are operating in the 12 steps and really focuses on steps 8, 9, and 10. It's a great book, Finding Forgiveness and Self-Respect by Working Steps 8 through 10. Folks, you don't want to miss out on this thing. We'll have a link uh, up on the page for Dr. Berger's website. Uh, Another great show, and uh, Dr. Berger will talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All right, folks, until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man along with Dr. Alan Berger, and we're wishing God's perfect serenity for you.
This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting.